Hey everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to someone I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Anthony Clark from the Rural Fire Service. Prior to the RFS, Anthony had a fairly extensive career in radio as a journalist with 2UE, 2GB and Nova 969. We chat about how he got his start in regional radio in Bathurst, covering the Bali bombings as a journalist, his job at the RFS and what role he played in the infamous Athens Olympics leaked audio blow-up tape. Anthony's one of the more entertaining people I've ever worked with, so I hope you enjoy our chat. Anthony Clark, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. It's it's been a long time coming. I know I have been campaigning for this moment to actually be a part of the podcast. I'm I'm glad that I'm finally here. That this is probably going to be the least downloaded Media Mates podcast that you've done to date. But thanks for the opportunity. I don't know. I think you've got a huge following out there. So we'll I, see how we go. Yeah, I don't know about that. How long have you been at the RFS now? Uh, been there about eight years now. So it's gone very, very quickly. Eight years. Interesting time to be there over the last eight years. A lot has changed. There's been a lot of big events during that time. You know, things like Black Saturday down in Victoria and big fires in New South Wales like the Blue Mountains and so on. So, yeah, busy time. And before that it was radio. Yeah, so all up I think it's probably, geez, probably about 20, 25 years or so in, in media. I know I don't look that old, but, um, yeah, I mean, I was only thinking the other day, actually, trying to trying to pin down what my, my first job was, and, and I think it was 2KY, Sport and Talk, back in about, must have been 1991 or 1992 or something. And what did you do there? Answering the phones on Colin Turner's soccer show on that Saturday was, night. That was overnight. That yeah. Went- so yeah. you went in there. That was the 2KY studios would have been at Out Parramatta at that stage. Yeah. And in uh, Wentworth Street at Parramatta, and I remember my dad used to drive me out there. Too young to drive, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, going out there and answering phone calls with um, Clint Wielden, uh, an old mate of mine that I went to uni with. Right. Who now works over in I Perth. Perth. Yeah, and for the uh, ABC. For the ABC. Yes. Yeah, so. I also work with him at 2GB when I did work experience there, and yeah. he was like the producer of the Hollywood and Zorba rugby league coverage, and I was yeah, his yeah. assistant. So, wow, there's a bit of a connection yeah. straight off the bat yeah, that I didn't I, even know about. I, I went to uni with Clint, and um, and I, I think I, I recall, actually, I, I think he even went to my high school. That's where the connection actually began. Right. And had a conversation with him about working in radio, and, and he was working at 2KY at the time. I was still at high school and, um, yeah, ended up going out there and answering phones overnight and, you know, with English soccer supporters, talking to them on the phone and, you know, and then occasionally get the, the step up to the big time working uh, working the phones on the 2KY breakfast show. And this is before it was like, you know, all sports, sports yeah. and, and stuff like that. Who was the presenter then? I actually think it, I think it may have been Gareth McRae. Really? Who I later worked with at 2UE. Right. Many, many years later. So, yeah. Goodness. Now, tell me about the uni day. So, was radio something that you were always wanting to get into? Yeah, definitely media. I I mean, I I always say that I I think it was probably back in about primary school when I actually thought, wow, that's something that I want to do. And... And, and started heading down that path. I remember even even in the days at, at home as a kid, remember the, sh- the TV show It's a Knockout? Yes. With Billy J. Smith and, Absolutely. Uh, and Fiona McDonald. Yes. Yeah. And uh, in the Max Rowley did the, the Max voiceover. Rowley did the voiceover. <laughs> and it used to be filmed out at uh, like Dural or somewhere yeah. like that in the in the stadium out there. And in the in the TV commercials, I used to turn the sound down on the TV and give the family updates, like sports reports, of what just happened in It's a Knockout. So I think that's where I got my first true taste of radio. With that in mind, going to uni to study communications at Charles Sturt, how did the progression go for you to get into a paid gig in the media? Well, well, I guess 
I guess I went to, to CSU up in Bathurst with the aim of being a journo. I always wanted to be a journo. Yeah. So, you know, did journalism up there. Um, ended up working in Bathurst for, for a couple of years at the, the local radio station up there at 2BS and, and B-Rock, uh, the FM station, and um, really good experience. But I, I suppose I did that for a couple of years and, you know, I was like breakfast presenter there, you know, doing the, you know, the crazy phone calls and, you know, as crazy as you can be in a place yeah, like yeah, Bathurst. Yeah. But, you know, being the, the breakfast presenter on an FM radio station and then realising, you know, well, you know, not earning great money in a place like Bathurst, but, geez, I, I've just done three years at university to be a journo and this is the best that I can do. Yeah. You know, like, you know, doing the... Uh, so Luke Boner perhaps would have been your boss then. Luke Boner was actually the guy who gave me my first job in Bathurst. Yeah. So, and, and I remember going down there and um, I, I'd been doing some stuff at the local uni radio station up there and, um, you know, some people had kind of put me in contact with Luke and said, go down and meet him down at 2BS. And I remember walking down the back of the building there, first first time that I'd stepped in that building and, you know, I gave him my, my, my tape, you know, old cassette, cassette tape, tape, hand yeah. that over Jesus. and he has a listen and goes, yeah, okay, you know, how'd you like a, a gig on the weekends? You know, just there on the spot and um, work with some some really good people up there like Luke. Luke was great, you know, and um, haven't really heard much from Luke lately. But of course, he's he's still working on radio in Sydney these days. Yeah, and I love tuning into him because he's a he's a fascinating bloke and and one of those people that I think um, really performs above you know what his reputation is actually like. You know, he, he's one of those quiet achievers. Um, really interesting bloke. Really interesting background. Um, but yeah, he he gave me my my first job in Bathurst. So would have he been one of your early mentors or yeah, yeah, were definitely. there other people there that well, you, know, you I, sort of learned a lot from? I, I look back on the <coughs> on the time in Bathurst and, and I think I've worked at the radio station there for probably three, four years all up, including at uni and, and things like that. And um, it, it's one of those places, you know, I always say that bush radio stations are, are really good it's a really good grounding because you get to appreciate all of the roles in the building because you're generally doing all of the roles yeah. in the building. You know, you're doing everything from on-air work to news stuff, you know, to promotions to, you know, I think at one stage I was breakfast presenter, music director, program director, doing some sales here and there. You know, they squeeze every bit of life out of you. But um, And you're like 21 years of age at that stage oh, or younger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I do look back on, on those times and, you know, it, it always brings a smile to my face because I, I always say that, you know, celebrity in Bathurst is, is a really interesting concept. Now, I always say that the checkout chicks at Coles are celebrities in Bathurst. Like you walk down the street and you, and you see, you know, a girl walks past you and you go, hey, Ralph. She works at Coles. Like, oh, people like that are oh, celebrities in Bathurst. And there's Marianne from the post office. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, I'm, I'm not I'm not putting shit on Bathurst by any means, but you know that that was just my experience of it. But you know, um, some other people that I I had exposure to up there, people like Ron Camplin, who many people may not know much about, but he owns the two radio stations up there. Right, and, um, used to own like 2MG out at Mudgee, and um, he's one of the the kind of dyed-in-the-wool, you know, regional broadcasters. Like, there's there's not many of them around these days. No, because you know, of networking and exactly. all the rest of it. Yeah, and and fiercely independent, you know, and, um, you know, especially when I was up there, like, he, he was one of the, the last ones around, probably, you know, the Camplin family and the, the Cameron family, who I think owned... Um, like Power FM and, and so on okay. back then. But, um, yeah, lovely old bloke, lovely old bloke, and his, and his wife, Stephanie, and uh, he retired probably about five, ten years ago, but still still owns the station up there. And, you know, he's he's one of those people that, again, probably doesn't have a huge profile, but I think he's in the um, in the commercial radio hall of fame because he's he's actually done a lot for the regional radio industry. And uh, lovely bloke, they live in a house right at the top of, uh, I think it's William Street there in Bathurst. Okay. Right at the top of the hill there and, you know, again, it, 
He's one of those people that everyone in town knows and everyone has a lot of respect for. You also take a lot of joy out of every time the Bathurst 1000's on. Oh, yes. <laughs> pointing out where you used to live when you were in Bathurst. Mm. That must have been an interesting experience, living like quite close to the track. Yeah, well, I actually lived literally on the track. We were living at 160 Mountain Street, and it's pretty cool to actually write that down yes. as your address. Um, so Back just- in the days when you used to actually get mail and postcards. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but how cool is that to have that as your street? And, um, I mean, admittedly, I, I, I never went over the speed limit driving home. Uh, <laughs> the speed limit is 60. Um, you know, I, I, in, interestingly enough, I, um, I, I learned to drive at about the age of, must have been about 22, 23. Really? Yeah. So, you know, family living in Sydney and, that, you know, mum and dad used to come and pick me up from uni or catch okay. the, the XBT home or something. But um, I learned to drive on the radio up there. And how it was it was one of the bodgiest bloody radio station promotions ever. Clarky gets his license, and uh, I was sponsored by like the local Ford dealer and the Shell service station, and I had to go through the motions of getting my my driver's license on air. And um, and and Bath has been. So did Bath you get was, it the first time? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. So at how the time. many promos were there? Oh, well, oh, sorry. Well, I, I failed the first test. Okay. But then went a couple of weeks later and, and finally got it. But um, because we we had the constant stream of um, race car drivers coming into town, any time that a race car driver would come into the radio station, we would use that as the promotion, oh, and I brilliant. would get a driving lesson off like Jason Barguana and Craig Lowndes and so on, like and 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 do that you. You drive through the McDonald's drive-through oh, with Craig Lowndes, and you still failed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely pathetic. Oh, yeah. oh dear. Now you've got the nickname of Cork. Where did that come from? Oh, Who God. gave that to you? Yeah, well, well, that actually happened in the Bathurst days when I um, <laughs> and again, you know, the concept of celebrity in Bathurst is an interesting one for me. I, I managed to get roped into hosting one of the big events up in Bathurst in the Bathurst region, and that is the annual Rockley Rodeo. Of course. Yeah. So they, they call in all the, all the big names. And uh, I remember being introduced, um, j- just as I was kind of emceeing it, I, I got introduced to the crowd and uh, they said, uh, um, Andrew Clark from, from the local radio station is here. Oh, actually, it's Anthony Clark, but oh, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> Do my spiel. And then old mate gets up on the stage again and says, well, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Andrew Cork. And I've gone, you've screwed up both now. <laughs> I made the mistake of, of many years later telling Justin Kelly, right. the news director, he hated to the GB that story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Diddy, what? Rosa. <laughs> and and uh, I, I was telling him that story. And, you know, it, it was a rite of passage in the 2GB newsroom when you got your nickname. Yes. Everyone had to have a nickname. And... Uh, and some stuck, some didn't. Yeah, Yours stuck. Mine stuck for a long time, and and I remember telling him the story. And you know, Rosa in typical Rosa Fallon uh, fashion goes, "From this point on, you shall be known as Cork," and it stuck. It stuck ever since. Oh goodness, Ray! Now, how did you make your way to Sydney then after having those years in Bathurst? Uh, from Bathurst, as I said, I was I was doing the the crazy stunt breakfast show type thing up there and um, decided that after spending three years at, at uni doing journalism and always wanting to do journalism, it was time that I actually put my degree to good use yeah. and head down that path. And um, I I ended up getting a job with Prime, Prime Television. Okay. And that was in Canberra. And they rang me and said, you know, you ready? Come, come live in Canberra. So I went down there, found a house to to live in and everything. And then the uh, the news director of Prime at the time rang me and said, actually, another job's just opened up in Newcastle. Would you prefer to go to Newcastle or Canberra? So I weighed that yeah, one yeah, up, yeah, you yeah. know, for about, you know, 0.1 seconds uh, and moved to Newcastle, <laughs> you know, down by the beach and everything there in, um, in Cooks Hill. Uh, worked for Prime for a couple of years up there, two or three years. Um, and we used to do the the radio news for 
the old stereo stations okay. up there. So yeah. NX and KOFM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and used to dabble in a bit of TV stuff. Hated doing TV. Why? Perfect head for radio, as they say. <laughs> you know, no, no interest in it. I'm not one of those people that, that necessarily likes to get the mug on TV or, or anything like that. But, um, yeah, worked up there for a couple of years. I, um, they end up shutting down the newsroom uh, as part of a, you know, a regional exercise up yeah. there uh, to save some money. And, unfortunately for me, I had resigned only about uh, three days before they announced oh. the newsroom was closing down. So while everybody... No payout for you. No payout. So everyone had to pack up their desks and, and leave that day because they were being retrenched. But because I had resigned, they insisted that I continue to serve out my notice period. And I was turning up for, for work for about two weeks or so with nobody in the building. It was one of the most bizarre experiences ever. And then after that, yeah, came down to Sydney again to work for 2UE. Yeah. Uh, where I had done work experience many years earlier and, you know, back then 2UE was, you know, the powerhouse of news in Sydney. The power station? The power station. Well, well, well no, no, no. no. <laughs> you know, where you don't the miss power a station thing. before the power station. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But... Um, you don't miss a thing. Radioactive. Yeah, and, and came down and, um, yeah, I, I think I... I think I basically sent in a in a tape and and got invited to come down and and talk to Sandy Aloisi and um, yeah got signed up for a for a job. So she was the news director at the time. There would yeah. have been some great people that were working in that newsroom at that yeah, stage. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, again, I think Justin Kelly was there. Yep. At that stage, people like um, Bronwyn Martin, um, Josh Murray, mm. um, Greg Burns, Clinton Maynard, Ben Fordham. Uh, was there a, a, as well? Was he working in the Canberra time? Bureau at that yeah, point, or had he left? Can't recall. Tom Malone. Tom Malone was there. Yeah, yeah. That was a really Steve Blander, of course. Well, yeah, Steve's absolutely. Yeah, for... part of the furniture yeah. there at that stage. And I mean, guys like uh, Andrew Martin and Jim Dolan would have been yeah. in the sports department. Mm-hmm. And it was when there was a whole lot of people there that. Um, you know, radio had a whole lot more money, and and yeah. um, two UE, as you said, was the the leading station at that stage. Yeah, and and you know what? Like walking into a place like that, and 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 you would have experienced this when you walk into a place like that, and suddenly those people that you have heard on radio for so long growing up, yeah, like shit. They're my colleagues. Yeah. So it was like you know, guys, like really like Lance, hard. Lance Northy. Oh, Lance Northy. Instance. And was Robert Kinney still there at that uh, stage? No, or no, he'd already no, left. He'd already gone. Right. Yeah. But, but huge pe- radio names, like, Sean Fewings and, yeah, you know, Yeah. Um, but people like Lance and, you know, and, and I remember early on in the piece um, going down to the Supreme Court building um, in Macquarie Street there and, and sitting there with Lance one day as he just did what he did every day for, for so long and, and, you know, they're those kind of moments that you kind of look back on and go, geez, you know, after after hearing these names on radio for so long, you're actually sitting there and seeing them, you know, do their craft. Um, and, and people like Lance, you know, so effortless. Yes. Um, I still see Lance around every now and again um, around the city. He's working in government, so, you know, I do see him. I think that was before there was a... Ownership changed and then a whole lot yeah. of people lost their jobs and then um, a whole lot of people also then went across to 2GB, which mm. you also did. That was your next step. Yeah. But before that, you were covering a whole lot of big stories and one of them was Bali. Mm. You went to Bali. Yeah. How was that? Um, that was after the first bombings in yeah, 2002. 2002. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, like, even just when you mention it, you know, the hairs kind of stand up on the on the back of the neck. Um, it, it was one of those experiences that has um, remained with me for a very long time. And, and I think partly because I I recall um, on that Sunday morning after the, the bombs had gone off and my, my only plan that morning was to go to Bunnings. You know, that, that's, that was going to be my Sunday yeah. and do stuff around home. And, um, very early in the morning, um, I, I, I think, I think it was Sandy Aloisi rang me and said, Hey, how'd you like to go to Bali? I went, Oh yeah. All right. When? 
oh, you know, flight at 11 o'clock this morning or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah, for how long? Oh, we don't know. Have you heard what's happened? No. Oh, looks like there's been some explosion over there. And, and that was very early on in the piece. And, and Yes, before we knew about... What what had yeah. really happened. And we knew that some Australians had been caught up in it, but I think at that stage people were still talking about, like, a gas explosion or, or something like yes. that. And, um, and, and I remember going out to the airport and 2GB, the other radio station, uh, had... Um, had also got somebody out there who was going to be on the same flight, Jennifer Havilar. Yes. Um, and I, I recall sitting at Sydney Airport talking to Jen, and we were actually talking, I think we were sitting next to one another on the plane. And, I mean, we, we really had not much of a clue about what was going on over there. Um, we were talking about what cheap DVDs we were going to buy in, in Bali. Wow. You know, and then when you actually landed. It would have been a rude there, shock when you actually landed. Yeah, so we, we checked into a hotel and the first thing that we did was walk down to the street where the um, where the nightclubs were, where Paddy's Bar and the um, Sari Club, the Sari Club were, and they, they were blocked off at, at either end. Yeah, and and I had my two UE microphone. You know, there's Indonesian police officers with big bloody machine guns and that standing there, and I flashed my black and white two UE microphone, and they waved me through. Right, and and. Less than, you know, must have been 12, 24 hours after these bombs had gone off. You're walking through the street, you know, and that smell is still there. Um, and it was the, the most bizarre experience I'd ever had. You know, like it, it walking down the street and, and seeing the damage. And um, after that, I went out to the um, to the Sanglar Hospital, which is in, in Denpasar, and... Going out there and, you know, we had heard that there were at that stage many Australian casualties, but went out there and, again, you know, how you do it, you just walk around with the microphone, you're, you're looking for any Australians, you know, you're listening for the voices and everything. And I, I walked up to the notice board there where um, they had all of the names of the people that had been um, brought into the hospital. Right. And there was a big bloke there and I, I could tell he was an Aussie. And I said, oh, do you mind if I have a chat to you? He goes, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, okay, what's your name? What are you doing here? Um, it was Eric DeHart who yes. was from the Coogee Dolphins. And I, I, I remember him saying, I can't remember the exact number, but he said, I've just lost five of my, my mates and I can't find the last one. And that was when it sort of hit you. It, it hit me like, holy shit, this is much bigger than what, you know, anyone really appreciated at that time. And as you walk around the hospital and, you know, fairly um, fairly basic conditions in the hospitals yeah. over there and seeing, um, you know, being exposed to the, the bodies of people that have been brought in and everything. And I must have been probably, I don't know, early 20s at the time, um, mid twenties on, and such an eye opening experience, and 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 I I stayed over there for probably a um a week or, or ten days or so, and and travelled around a little bit, and went to Jakarta with um Alexander Downer. I think I think Howard flew in at one point, yeah. And kind of followed those those guys around, but um I, I remember the the time that it really hit me. I was I think I was in Jakarta. And I'd, I'd kind of been given an afternoon off. Okay. There was nothing happening. And I was I was in the hotel pool. First time that I'd managed to kind of switch off, and that's when it hit me. And I, I ended up having to do a, um, a cross back home with um, with a radio station in Newcastle. Okay. Um, on NXFM up there. They rang me and said, mind if, if we have a, had a chat. And I, I lost it. I lost it because that was the moment that it all kind of hit home. Yeah, and and I remember talking to the the announcers and, and talking about what what I'd seen and everything. And um, I mean, I, I think at that point that was, you know, that's when I realised shit. These these things actually take a big toll on the people reporting them as well. How many days in was that? Probably um, probably about maybe seven days, ten days in. 
you know. Right, and, so you had... And no was, sleep during that yeah, time. Yeah, you would have absorbed the whole magnitude of just complete yeah. devastation and seeing charred remains yeah. and bodies and, and, and things and, like that. And, you know, <clears throat> being a journo, you're always looking for those heartbreaking stories, um, you know, the people that are either flying in from Australia looking for relatives or the people who are flying home without their relatives. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I remember uh, when I got home, Greg Burns uh, at, at 2UE said, you know, good job, but you, you actually need to go and get some help. And, um, you know, they 2UE was, was great because they, they recognised that these things do actually have an impact on on the people reporting on yes. them as well. And, you know, they they gave some great assistance and everything. And I've, I've actually been a really big supporter of that ever since. You know, the, the, the people that are often thrust into um, those types of stories and events, um, you know, and you've always got that bravado, like, yeah, yeah. you know. It won't affect you. It but... won't affect me. <clears throat> but um, and, and over the years, you know, I've, I've spoken to, to many people who have had situations like that as well. Um, and there, there's some people doing some great work. Like there's a there's a group um, called the Dart Centre down in Melbourne, and, and I've had a bit to do with them through the fire service as well. Okay. People who um, report on events like Black Saturday and how it actually impacts on them. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's something that's quite often overlooked. The general public wouldn't necessarily think that because all they're hearing is your report on the radio. Uh, or they're seeing a report from a journalist on the TV, I don't think that they can understand the full magnitude of you actually being on the spot and seeing that. And if they could put themselves in that position, Mm. I think that they'd change their views. But at the end of the day, ultimately, all they're doing is they're consuming what you're reporting and not thinking about the psychological damage that it does to you actually seeing that. And I think... Perhaps maybe it's changed a little bit these days where you don't get as close yeah. as what you're used to, but yeah. still that, like you say, is something that stayed with you for a long time. Mm. But, and, and you know, I, I don't want to kind of overstate, you know, the the effect that it, it had on me or anything, and, and I appreciate that there are a lot of people that it had a much greater effect on for obvious reasons, you know, family members and, and things like that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, situations like that, I, I certainly look back on and go very character building, um, and you know, and, and as I said, you you walk into situations like that, I suppose, with a bit of um, being naive in a way, yeah, um, with a bit of bravado, um, but you know, I, I think, I, I think when when journo's cover big stories like that, that and it does have an effect on them. You know, it's normal, and and I've spoken to people like, um, you know, there, there's there's a journo in in Adelaide who worked for Channel Seven, who, um, and the Channel Seven studios in Adelaide used to be right next to the the river down there, and you know, I think she was out for lunch or something, and a, a baby in a stroller went into the river, and the journo was the first one there on scene, and you know, and and she's told the story about the effect that that had on her as well, and you know, it's quite common. Um, well, people are human after yeah, all. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> like you're there doing a job, but, yeah, it, it has an effect as well. So to you, we, that was obviously an enjoyable experience, but then Alan Jones and Ray Hadley moved across to 2GB. Mm-hmm. You followed probably a year or so later. Yeah. How did you find the switch there? Why did you move? Um, <laughs> cha-ching. <laughs> you know, you, you're not exactly well paid as a... Uh, as a radio journal in Sydney and, um, you know, any extra bit of money um, was always welcome. I, I think also at that stage the industry had changed a lot. Two year we had been the powerhouse, but with the defection of Jones and Hadley over to GB, suddenly that's where all the attention was. And, and you know, you obviously want to be a part of the winning team. Um, so, yeah, um, Justin Kelly uh, gave me the, the job over there. I um I really enjoyed the time at um at 2GB but you know when I was moving house last year year before I, I found one of the the greatest pieces of correspondence in my life from Justin Kelly it was my reference from when I left 
2GB. And it basically said, Andrew Cork is shit. <laughs> he was quite often scooped by journos and 2SM. Oh, goodness <laughs> and it was me. a complete stitch up. But, yes. you know, it was, while it was, um, it had plenty of highs and lows. There were plenty of good times in there as well. Lots of laughs. Yeah. And you were there during that yeah, time. Yeah, I was, was, that was when we first sort of met each other and, and, um, and dealt with each other. And you came across, I think, almost immediately and you were the guy that was the, well, as you put it in your own words, the self-appointed entertainment coordinator. The, the SANIC, yes. I think, was the, the, the <laughs> self-appointed newsroom entertainment coordinator. You know, you'd come up with the caption uh, competitions yes. and all of that kind of stuff, which... I was a team know, builder. <laughs> oh, which, you know, kept everybody entertained in the newsroom and kept the team spirit going yeah. and all of that kind of stuff, and it was it was great, but... Tuchibi also presented you with the opportunity to go to Athens uh, yes. at the Olympics. What was that like? Um, yeah, another another amazing experience. I I spent a month over there, so probably uh, a good two weeks or so in the lead up to the two thousand and four Olympics. Um, you know, reporting on the preparations and and everything, and, and following the the team around. Um, you know, it it presented me with some amazing. Moments that even now I look back on and go, yeah, shit, not too many people get. Because you're not like a full-on sports guy, right? No, 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 not at all. I mean, you know, let, let I always say this to you, you know, I'm the bloke who goes along to the AFL and shouts out, that's good football, <laughs> when someone, you know, does something with the ball. I, I don't know much about sport. <laughs> but I, I remember going over there and, and, you know, one of those moments where you go, wow, this is pretty cool, like what a – what an experience was when I um, they were doing the the Australian team had flown into town and they were out at the athletes' village and they had the flag raising ceremony and that and then they had the official reception afterwards yeah. where they announced the the flag bearer and uh, and that night they had I think Delta Goodrum was was singing there for okay. them and I think she was uh, I think. The Scud was part of the Olympic team back then. Oh, really? Yeah, so maybe that's why Delta was there. But um, I, I was out at the Athletes' Village and um, and I missed the media bus. What? And, and I've walked up to, uh, I think it was um, Mike Tancred, who long-term yeah. media boss at, at the um, AOC, and I said, mate, I need to get out there. You know, I would lose you my job <laughs> at, at that moment. And he goes, well, come with me. And he goes, just jump on this bus. And I'll get on that bus and there's the Australian swim team with Laurie Lawrence sitting up the back of the bus as the team motivator and singing, like, waltzing Matilda and everything, you know, Laurie in his typical <laughs> style, you know, trying to fire them up. And and I'm sitting there like, you know, there's there's the, the Thorpes and, and people like that. And, and, and like, I, I think there was, like, Liesl Jones and, and yes. people like that and, and sitting here going, Grant Hackett. And- this is pretty cool. Yeah. This is pretty cool. You know, having a sing-along on the Australian team bus going out to the uh, the team reception. You would have had to le- work pretty long hours, though, in the, mm. that, that period, but it would have been just completely enjoyable at the same time. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, challenging. As I said, I'm not – I'm certainly not a, uh, a sports commentator and, you know, the – the, the magic of the Olympics on TV and radio, the reality of it is you spend a lot of time sitting in a small, dark room not seeing much sport. Yes. Because you're actually watching most of it on a small TV monitor. From and, a and, broadcast centre, main yeah, broadcast yeah. centre. And, and, and you're actually, essentially you're doing what people are doing at home. You're watching it on TV and telling people what's happening you know, in Athens at the time. That's that's actually the reality. Like you're actually there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the great oh, theatre of radio the, the scenario. Yeah. And, and, you know, <clears throat> I, I remember uh, one night in particular being in the International Broadcast Centre there and uh, and I got the message down the line from Sydney, uh, you know, we needed to switch over to baseball and we needed to call the last bit of the baseball like Australia's going to win a medal here. And I'm thinking... Baseball? Holy crap. Crap. So I'm thrown in at the deep end there and um, and I remember jumping on air and and being presented with the score and at that moment I realised, what do you call zero in baseball? 
Is it zero? Is it none? Is it is it naught? Is it love? So <laughs> over the space of the next five or ten minutes, I think I used all of those. Oh, good. Yeah, oh, cover, it's, all, it's, co- cover all bases to pardon the pun. Yes, it's too nada. It's too <laughs> zip. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, it, it was um, – I did get out there and, and see a couple of events and, you know, it's always – it's always pretty cool to say that you've worked at an Olympic Games, um, you know, and, and I think also... Especially at the home of the Olympics. Exactly. Where it exactly. started. And, you know, like being able to, to do great great things like go to the... Um, go up the top of the hill to the Acropolis and... Or is it the Necropolis? The uh, Acropolis? No, Acropolis now. Yeah, that's the Greek yeah, yeah, one, yeah. yeah correct. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and, and be a part of moments like that. It's pretty cool. There was also another moment that oh, yeah. happened during that Olympic mm. Games. The famous tape got leaked. Yes. There were a few people that got mentioned on that tape, mm. and you were one of them. Yes. Only that once. Would have, <laughs> that would have been an uh, interesting experience. Yeah, it was. The, this is the, the famous Ray Hadley blow-up, the rip your ears off. Here are correct F and S, yeah. you know. Um yeah, my it, it was actually my story that that sparked that blow up that morning. Um, so, did you get a dressing down from Ray? Um, no, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I mean, the I, I recall the way that it, it kind of unfolded because because of the time difference, it was very late at night, possibly even early morning over there, and it was leading into breakfast in Sydney. Yes, and you know, you you, you put all your stories in the can for for the whole of breakfast, well before the breakfast shift of actually starts. So um, you've pre-recorded all of them and I had pre-recorded all of the stories from about 5 o'clock in the morning through to 9 o'clock, you know, stories for every single half hour. And uh, it must have been just after 5.30 back home. Okay. Uh, and I was on the bus going back to the, the media village when Justin Kelly got a phone call um, and... He was the FNS referred to in the tape. Yes, yeah. So he, he was the news director at the time and um, he certainly got a, a pretty sizable tickle up uh, over the stories uh, that I had filed. He went into bat for me, you know. We, 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 we had a you know, pretty solid plan about what we were doing and what we were using for all of those stories. And, and look, we, we understood everyone's working long hours you're not getting much much sleep, um, and I think at that point, yeah, it was one of those things. People blow up from time to time, and you move on, and we moved on. But it was a couple of days later, I think, maybe a day or so later, uh, and someone uh, from Two GB rang me and said that blow up the other day, um, it's gone public, and. Well, see, this when, is this. These are the days even before social media. So the mm. only way to transport something like that was to send it via email, mm. and I think everybody in Sydney media got that email. Oh yeah, yeah. So this was the famous spray that um, that Ray had down the line back to somebody in Sydney, not to Justin, but um, you know, some some harsh words were said in that. Certainly, um, it it was. A really bizarre time being over there and seeing all of this unfold. I think we had three, four people, three people from the newsroom, myself, Justin Kelly and Zoe Alibone. Yes. Were working over there at the time. So a really small team. And for something like that to blow up and suddenly, you know, that is the story that everyone at home is talking about, about the Olympic Games. Um, that was a bizarre situation to be in. And, you know, um, I, I I did have a, a bit to do with Ray during my, my time at GB, obviously, and, you know, and Ray, um, you, you, you could tell that Ray regretted that very early on, very early on, regretted that. The terms that he used or? Well, I, I think so, and, and you know, I'm, to this day I don't know if it's the the PR spin doctors stepping in and, um, getting the donations happening to charities and things like that. But from, from what I saw on the ground over there, he, um, he really did regret the, the actions. Did he regret being caught? Yeah. 
obviously. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously I, I feel very sorry for people like Justin Kelly, whose name is being, you know, aired all over the place. I, I, I still remember when I came home and, um, and Media Watch, of course, featured it. Picked it up, yeah. Yeah, it was great that Media Watch bleeped out oh, Justin for- Kelly's name all through it, but not mine. <laughs> <laughs> or Trevor Lawrence. Yes. <laughs> oh, anyway. Oh, yeah, it must have been an interesting time. Another, early on in this podcast series, I spoke to Andrew Moore mm. about mm. Alan Jones and we spoke. Well, I think it's safe to say he was glowing in his praise. Yeah, I mean that was. I've actually written the word "glowing" in yeah. his praise on mm. these notes yes. right here. Your experience with Alan on one particular occasion wasn't so glowing. No, take us through that. Look, it's, it's a famous radio story. It, it, it is, and it's become one of those ongoing jokes. And uh, and look, I, I need to say straight up, as I said before, I get that people have blow ups. It's part and parcel of. Of the industry. Yeah. Um, and normally you just bat it off and move on. Um, but this one morning, and, and I, I can't remember what the um, what the story was actually about. And, you know, Alan, Alan was always one of those people that you'd always heard about the blow-ups, you know, whether it was the who stole the tissues at 2 your week yes. or, you know, the, the Get blow-ups. me the sectional times for Joe Bloggs in the swimming. Yep. And and yeah, he, he's he's renowned for it, and and that's it's almost part of the part of the act. Now. Yes, yeah. And um, and I, I do recall this one morning when he walked into the the newsroom, and, and I was sitting there editing breakfast news at the time, and you know a pretty full on shift, and you know you're working pretty hard during that time, and uh, and Alan walked in and said, "Right, who's in control here?" Oh, Alan. That's me. Well, your performance this morning has been pathetic. Three out of ten. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like that, he was gone. Yeah. And, and I think that was performance management at, at 2GP. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, when, when someone as iconic as, as Alan Jones says that to you, and, and I know to say, you know, Alan Jones wouldn't know me from a bar of soap these no. days. Um, so so I, 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 I do tell this story with some trepidation. Um, but Rubbish. <laughs> you tell it with entertainment and it gets better every time. <laughs> but I, I also recall, you know, being somewhat shaken by it and getting into the lift to go downstairs and grab a coffee. I needed five minutes out of the office and I got into the lift and Ray Hadley was, was in the lift and he goes, right. what's wrong, mate? I'm like, Alan, he's just walked into the newsroom and given me a three out of ten. <laughs> And Ray goes, mm. that's nothing. He once gave me a one out of ten. <laughs> so <laughs> you said, found a whole lot better so about yourself. So, so I turned around and said, see this fist? I'm going to ram it down your throat next time. And I've just gone, all right, Ray, I'll try that next time. <laughs> but, you know, and, and the following day, things are back to normal. Mm. And, and that's just, it, it's part of the colour and the, uh, yeah, part, part of the colour and, and the culture. You also managed to get a little bit of, how shall I put it? Uh, vengeance on Alan when we formed a uh, we we formed a little organisation called Cork Tuck Shop Events where yeah. we would organise reunions and I think radio we founded that radio. I think we founded that what in two thousand and seven yes. in two thousand and seven yeah our our slogan was bringing people together since two thousand and seven correct yeah, yeah. we organised radio drinks and and reunions and all of that kind of gear. In 2008, there was another Olympic Games in Beijing. Mm. We managed to make the papers with our little invitation. It was World Youth Day. World Youth oh, Day, right. yes. Was oh, okay, when, right. When the Pope was coming to Sydney. Yes. And uh, with a bit of Photoshop work, I turned the Pope into Alan Jones or turned Alan Jones into the Pope yes. for, the, for the invite. And, you know, I forget what it actually said on there, but it was, you know, bringing people together around the world and, yeah. you know, the, the, the pilgrims and the masses coming and, you know, the Church of Allen and, and all this kind of stuff, taking the complete piss. And, you know, Allen's people saw it and thought it was fantastic and everything. They were laughing about it. The only thing was your name wasn't on the invite. No, it wasn't. Mine was yeah, and was my good. phone number. And yeah. I got a call from Marcus 
Casey, Casey at the, the Daily, Daily Telegraph, Telegraph asking me about this invite, <laughs> which then featured in the next edition of the Daily Telegraph, yes. the full edition. Yes. It's one of our proudest moments, I must say. It was, say. actually, and uh, I think the following invite actually said, as featured in the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> so we used it to our advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't the only prank that you pulled. Once you'd left 2GB, you went to work for Nova. Oh, yeah. Was there an Australia Day press release that you concocted or something? Wasn't there some oh. kind of bizarre thing that another practical joke? As I said, mentioned earlier, you were one for con- conducting mm. practical jokes on yeah. other staff mem- members, and you didn't let it rest when you left 2GB. Yeah, I, I, I recall one one thing that I I really enjoyed doing at, at Nova, and Nova was an incredible place to work. It was, you know. An amazing culture there, all about fun, having having fun in the workplace. The only place that I've ever worked where there's a an Xbox in reception and a beanbag in the newsroom, you know, like pretty laid back. Yeah. And uh, I used to cut up the interviews that we'd do in the morning in the newsroom there and put them in the system and then make prank phone calls to people and play those snippets of audio so that people would actually think that Verity Firth was calling in to give news grabs or something. And, you know, between you and me and and everyone listening to this, if anyone is, um, you'd always call 2SM. You'd call the 2SM newsroom and offer them up grabs. And once or twice, they actually thought it was Verity Firth on the phone and actually got grabs and those grabs ended up going to air. Oh. But I, I think the other one, the, the Australia Day one, was when um, there was a story in the newspaper one morning that, you know, something like 30% of kids didn't know why we celebrate Australia Day. Oh, and this is Carmel Tebbit. Carmel Tebbit. And, uh, and Carmel Tebbit, you know, when, when the politicians ring in each morning, they're doing the rounds and they, they ring up and give grabs. And talking to her, she was the education minister at the time, and talking to her about the story on the front page of the Australian newspaper, oh, isn't it terrible? You know, kids these days don't know what Australia Day actually means. And, you know, she says, oh, well, we, you know, do it through... Modern history and and um, and indigenous history and, and everything and um, and then I, I asked her the very simple question. I was doing other stuff at the time. I wasn't really listening to to what she was saying. But I asked her the question. So why why do we celebrate Australia Day? Well, that's the day that all the states came together in federation on the on the first of January. Uh, no, it's not. And then didn't you proceed to question her about when Captain Cook arrived in Australia, which was seventeen seventy? Yeah, no, instead of seventeen eighty eight. I think I think that that may have um, that may have come later. Well, Captain Cook did arrive in seventeen seventy. Yes, not seventeen eighty eight. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, because the settlement Arthur Philip came out in seventeen eighty eight. Yes, yeah. Exactly. I just wanted to make yeah. sure that you knew oh, yeah. your, your modern history. Yeah, there. Yeah, I'm all over it like <laughs> a fat kid on cake. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I I remember hanging up the phone from from the education minister that morning and just turning to somebody in the newsroom and going, you'll never guess what I just got. The education minister, you know, being asked about Australia Day and not knowing what it is. Uh, I think my first port of call straight after that was to the Channel 7 newsroom to send them the uh, the audio. Uh, offending it. audio. Yeah. Um, I didn't get too many phone calls from, um, from Carmel doing the ring around after that. You then moved on to the RFS, where you are now. Yep. What prompted that decision? Um, it actually goes back to 2001 when really? I was working at 2UE at the time and there were bad bushfires around Sydney and I was camped out at Rose Hill at the old RFS building out there. Um, you know, this is in the days of Phil Koberberg as the, the commissioner and yes. John Winter yes. was heading up the the media section there and, um, you know, being camped out there for essentially a, a couple of weeks um, covering the fires. And and I remember saying to John one day, you know, what if your job ever came up out here? I'd love to do it. And then it was about seven years later that John actually rang me out of the blue and said, hey, you know how you said that you'd like to do my job? Well, there's a job opening. Why don't you put in for it? So I, I actually applied for it and, um, yeah, made the move uh, back in about 2008 and started working in the media section there. Really, um, you know, I, I had been looking at getting out of radio because it, you know, what it's like, you know, years and years of 
3 a.m. wake up calls. Yeah. It does take its toll after a while. Um, so yeah, made the, made the move out there and I, I had looked at getting into, I suppose, media and PR for a while, but the RFS was actually the first organization that I, that I looked at and went, you know what? Good organization. You know, you could be, um, peddling medicines for a pharmaceutical company or working in government spin yeah. or something like that. But, um, great organization with a great culture. Um, you know, the every day to this day, you know, you hear great stories about what great people are doing all over the place, you know, being a, a volunteer organization and, um, yeah, you know, one, one of the, one of the truly kind of iconic organizations in this country, I think. Who helped you with that transition at the RFS in those early days? Um, I think, I think largely, um, my, my, my boss at the time, uh, in the media section was Rebel Talbot, yep. um, who many people would have had a lot to do with, with the RFS over the years. Um, she certainly helped me a lot. Um, and I remain good friends with, with Rebel to this day. She still works for the RFS as well. Um, I think, as I said, people like uh, John Winter, who was no longer there, but you know was still a part of the organisation, um, and and I think, yeah, I, I think people like that were probably the the main ones that that kind of got me running in in the role, um, but still maintaining contact with lots of people from the media, the yeah. outside world media. What was the main difference between? working in media and then working for an organisation like the RFS? I, I, I was going to say it's it's almost like a nine-to-five job, but it's it's not a nine-to-five job working for an emergency service, obviously. Um, you know what? Probably not. There probably wasn't that much of a difference because, you know, the, the phone is still ringing in the middle of the night. There's always something happening. And, you know, coming from a, a journo background, you're always looking for, those good stories in the organisation and want to want to tell them and um and you and you certainly still get the opportunity to engage with the media and doing media updates and um yeah pro- probably it probably wasn't that big a change to be perfectly honest because still that really close link to the media it's not like most organisations where you're sitting there writing media releases yeah. and you don't really talk to journos or anything you know. It's it's built on having a good relationship with the media. We always say that the media is actually part of firefighting. Yeah. Because without the media, we can't get the information, the warnings, and and the stories out there. So, you know, really important to engage with with the media. I guess you had an advantage in that you knew how the media operated, so you yep. knew what you had to deliver. So, yep. did you see that? As an asset from the get-go? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, by no means am I the first person to ever go from no. from journalism into, you know, media PR communications roles. Um, I think it does give people a really good um, really good understanding of, obviously, the news cycle, what journos are looking for. I, I, I quite often say to people that one of the, the best things that I carried over from, from journalism actually came from Nova. Okay, and you know, let, let's face it, Nova isn't a, uh, you know, you wouldn't put it up there as a two GB two UE hard-hitting news powerhouse. <clears throat> no, um, and you know, doing news on American Rosso's program is very different to doing news on the Alan Jones Breakfast Show. But um, one of the best things that I learned there was brevity, being able to where, where is it, you know, a two UE two GB, you might have forty seconds to tell a story. At Nova, you've got 15 seconds to tell that same story. Yeah. So writing really short and sharp. Um, and I always say to people, that's actually something that I carried over into my my role, especially when you are trying to get really complex information delivered very quickly when when time isn't on your side. And appreciating that the nature of, of our organisation, of, of our industry, you know, time isn't on your side. You're quite often making very quick decisions on the run and trying to get the information out as quickly as possible. Dealing with devastation, as you mentioned when you were going over to Bali, I guess it's a very similar story when you're working for the RFS. Mm. Unfortunately, there are going to be times when there's going to be properties lost, 
and lives lost. Yeah. Did you find that difficult to deal with or how yeah, do you yeah, cope yeah, with definitely. that situation? Definitely because, I mean, um, and, and I should clarify, you know, it's 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 not just media that we're, we're doing. We're not just doing interviews and, and things like that. So um, people in my team are, are the ones who are... Um, who are doing a lot of the informational warnings during fires. So, um, you know, when there's a bad fire and you go to the, the website and the information is there, you know, we're, we're the ones who are sitting there pulling out together and actually getting it um, out to the community. Um, when when there are big fires like the October 2013 fires where you lose 200 homes in one afternoon, um, you you can't help but feel for those people and, you know, you, you, you carry that burden as well. What's it like working in that pressure situation where you know things are getting really bad yeah. and you have to convey that message? Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's been situations where we, you know, and, and some of these fires move so quickly um, that getting solid information about what is happening is very, very difficult, you know, in... In 60 seconds, the situation can change very, very dramatically. Has social media helped you guys in that regard? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and, you know, October 2013, I think, was a was a really good example of, of how social media can help us. You know, I I often tell the story that I think it's um, from, from the first tweet that was put out about a fire uh, up at Springwood, in the Blue Mountains to when we were getting information out of our building. It was about three minutes. Um, you know, that's how quickly things are happening now. Um, you know, getting information in from from social media, getting information out via social media. Um, but I'll tell you what, you, you can't help but feel when you log on to Facebook or Twitter or something on a day like that and you are seeing... Everyone is talking about it. You are seeing the images, the video, and, and everything of um, you know uh, two hundred homes, as I said, in, in one afternoon. And you know there, there have been situations where um, where people have lost their lives. Um, the the ones that really do affect us are the ones where our own people lose their lives. Yeah, you know, and, and being a volunteer organisation, um, people going out there, you know, just wanting to help their own community and, you know, the, the old cliche of paying the ultimate sacrifice, but that's what they do. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just out there trying to make someone's day better and end up losing their lives. They're the ones that, that do affect us. And, you know, our, our, our commissioner, Shane Fitzsimmons, um, really, really passionate about his people out on the fire ground and it really affects him when, how people are affected yeah. as well. We'll wrap it up in a minute, but would there be any advice that you'd give to people that are looking to break into media and or communications? Yeah, I, I think... Because um, it's a lot harder now, right, than yeah, what it, it was when we were getting into it. It is. And, and, you know, I, I, I think back, you know, there's... If you followed my, my career path, geez, you'd hit a lot more hurdles than what I hit because there's probably not as many opportunities out there in the bush there's probably not as many opportunities to do work experience. There's probably not as many opportunities to just send in a tape and get a phone call and say, hey, come on in. You know, it, it, it doesn't really happen like that all that much anymore. I, I think my advice to to anyone over the years looking to get into to media, to radio, to communications, don't be afraid to experiment and do it. Do different roles, branch out, get a really good understanding of everything that's out there, and and also, don't be afraid to actually have some fun along the way. And I think you know those times at Two GB are a good example. The times at Nova, you know, like working in a place like Nova, you know, for years considering myself, you know, the, a serious journo, and then you're going and doing you know twenty second voice reports on American Rosso show, you know where they'll end up taking the piss out of you. Um, don't be afraid to do stuff like that as well because you, you can have a lot of fun and, you know, and enjoy the people that you work with as well and, and sap up the, the experience from them. Anthony Clark, thanks very much for joining me. 
I, I hope that's been okay, Ralph, because I'm still not confident that people are actually going to listen to this diatribe. Yeah. But but I am glad that I've made the top ten. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that I'm busting for a piss. So let's go. <laughs> and and thanks for doing the first ever podcast with beers. I'm glad that that I've been your first. Cheers. Cheers. There he is, Anthony Clark from the Rural Fire Service. I told you it was entertaining, didn't I? If you really enjoyed my chat today with Anthony, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Anthony Clark AU. That's Clark without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Please check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or a review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.